Here's some advice from my dear old dad. He said, son, I'm dropping knowledge you're going to wish you had. If you want to follow the story, you got to follow the money. Words can obscure and companies act funny, but numbers don't lie. They tell a truthful tale, like which businesses are booming and who's for sale, like who's backing who and who's the biggest whale, like which corporate insiders may be headed to jail, like which companies are likely to be acquired and which security filings will need to be required. Those numbers get murky in private equity, but the deals are flowing. Check, check, checkity. The action's on the inside. It's the fast train to excess. So let's kick, kickity, kick it on the Investopedia Express. All aboard, everybody. It's good to be back on the rails, but it has not been a smooth ride since we last spoke. U.S. equity markets are coming off their worst week since June, and investors keep looking for reasons to sell. COVID, inflation, government spending, a slowdown in the pace of economic growth. September, there are plenty of reasons. But aren't there always? While U.S. markets did sell off last week, the selling was orderly and far from extreme. The S&P 500 only fell 1.4% last week, and even though it felt worse... Money keeps flowing into equities. $12.5 billion went into global equities in the past week, bringing 2021's total to a record-breaking $1.04 trillion. That's greater than the cumulative inflows into global stocks from 2001 to 2020. Let me say that again. The total amount of money that has gone into global stocks in 2021 is more than every year from 2001 to 2020 combined. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Ah, Maximus, we could use your leadership right about now. It's been more than 310 days since the S&P 500 fell 5% or more in one trading session. You have to go all the way back to 2017 to find a stretch as long. And this bull market is relatively young. At 18 months old, it's still a teenager compared to the average length of a bull market, which is five years. That doesn't mean it won't slip into a correction or buck us out of our saddles every now and then. That's what markets do. This one has been particularly tame, but don't count on it staying that way. The intersection of politics and the stock market is about to get a little more interesting. That $1.1 trillion stimulus bill is still being bounced around Capitol Hill as the House of Representatives has yet to vote on it. And then there's the $3.5 trillion spending plan that Democrats want to pass through budget reconciliation. In other words, without passage by Republicans. But paying for it is a whole nother matter. And the bargaining is in full force in Washington. Two things under consideration that could profoundly impact investors. A raising of the corporate tax rate from 21%, where President Trump put it in 2017, up to 26.5%, according to a new proposal by House Democrats, and imposing a surtax on people earning over $5 million a year. Passing tax hikes on corporations and the rich is never easy, but anything's possible these days. And then there's a potential tax on corporate stock buybacks. Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden and Senate Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown, two senior Democrats, floated a proposal to impose a 2% excise tax on corporate stock buybacks, which are real popular among the biggest companies in the stock market like Apple and Berkshire Hathaway. Stock buybacks totaled a record $806 billion in 2018, the first year after the passage of the tax cuts. This year, they're expected to top $720 billion. Remember, companies buy back their own shares when they think they're cheap or undervalued and when they have no better use for their cash. Those buybacks reduce the amount of shares outstanding and make companies look more profitable from an earnings per share standpoint. This young bull market we've been riding has been spurred on by companies buying back their own stock among other things. Are you ready for some football? 
Oh yeah, ready or not, football season is here, and that means a lot of sports betting. More than 45 million Americans are expected to bet on the NFL this season, a 36% increase over last year, according to the American Gaming Association. That's because more states than ever have legalized sports betting, and five more are on the way. The NFL knows this. It's a nonprofit organization, quote unquote, that generated more than $12 billion for its teams last year, and it expanded its season. The expansion is a result of the new collective bargaining agreement signed last year, and it's a big deal for the league, the teams, sports betting, and Amazon.com. That's right. The NFL recently signed a $100 billion media rights deal with its broadcasting partners and Amazon that makes the e-commerce giant a part of its streaming package for Thursday Night Football this year. And Amazon will become the exclusive broadcaster for Thursday Night Football for 10 years as of 2022. Let's get set up for the week ahead. After the worst week for U.S. equity since June, investors will be bracing for more volatility this week. September is living up to its reputation as the worst month for U.S. stock market returns so far. Cupertino, California will be in the spotlight this week on September 14th. That's the day Apple is calling California Streaming, and it's the iPhone maker's third product release event so far this year. We're expecting the new iPhone 13 models and an Apple Watch Series 7 model to debut at the event, along with new Apple Watch bands and iPhone cases. We could also get the AirPods 3 since we keep losing ours. As for the iPhone 13, it's a lot like the 12, but a little thicker and in some new colors. iPhone sales are kind of important for Apple. They made up 48.6% of Apple's total revenue in the third quarter, and they're usually good for about half or more than half of the company's overall sales. No pressure. Oh, and by the way, Apple is still reeling from a decision in a California federal court last week that mandates the company must allow all developers in its app store the option to point directly to other payment systems in addition to Apple's own in-app purchasing system. It's a decision that cuts right to the heart of Apple's $19 billion a year the App Store brings in for the company, because at the end of the day, the App Store makes most of its money off of in-app purchases. The IPO calendar will start to heat up as more than 110 companies are set to go public in the next four months, including eyeglass maker Warby Parker and Flipkart, among others. On Tuesday, we'll get the U.S. Core Consumer Price Index rate for August. Core CPI fell to 4.3% from 4.5% on an annualized basis from June to July, but it's still higher and lasting longer than the Federal Reserve predicted, according to the central bank's latest FOMC minutes. If prices remained high in August, and they probably did, fears of stagflation may creep in given the slowdown in hiring. Great Britain and Canada will also report core inflation figures for August on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll get the U.S. retail sales figures from August. Consumer spending and sentiment both fell to record lows last month amid the spread of the Delta variant and new mass mandates. Retail sales only increased 2.4% in July after rising 9.2% in June, so the outlook for August is pretty dim. On Friday, we'll hear more about consumer psyches when the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment and Expectation Preliminary Reports for September are released. Anecdotal data from credit card companies, airlines, and automakers is already telling us that consumers continued to pull back in September, and many cited the resurgence of COVID-19 cases as the reason. We should expect low readings on both of those surveys again. 
The capital markets are awash in cash. More than $1 trillion flowed into global equities so far this year. That's a record. But outside of the public markets, private equity and venture capital have been in a bonanza. There's more than $7.4 trillion in assets in private equity, according to McKinsey. And those deal makers have been very, very busy this year. Private equity buyouts and mergers are on a record pace. And there's an estimated $1.7 trillion in dry powder just waiting to be deployed. Where is all this money coming from and who's behind it? Well, no one covers the mysterious world of private equity and venture capital closer than Dan Permack. He writes the Pro Rata newsletter for Axios, and he's been on top of this industry for years. Welcome to The Express, Dan. So good to have you. Thanks for having me. We've seen massive deal making going on. Obviously, there's a lot of money out there. Interest rates are low. Money's cheap. Stock prices are high. A lot of pent-up demand. But what do you think is driving so much activity? The private markets typically follow the public markets, and that's definitely happening in this case. So what you're seeing is because public equities have done so well, stocks have done so well, big institutional investors have a lot of extra cash. And so if you're an institutional investor, say, that had a 10% allocation to private equity, well, in terms of real dollars, it's a lot more of them today than it used to be because your entire portfolio has grown so much in value. And so what do you do? You need to invest in funds, and those funds keep raising more and more money because they've got more to come. And top that with the fact that what used to mostly be kind of a US and European industry has really become a global industry. So you've got a lot more money, particularly coming from Asia and the Middle East. Yeah, sure. And Europe too. Europe's been a very active hotbed of private equity deals. And if everything is globalized, as we know, so even the biggest global private equity players here in the US are players on the global stage. I'm thinking of the, the Blackstones of the world, the Carlisle groups of the world. So those are some of the big names, Carlisle, Blackstone, folks have maybe heard of some of these, but who are the groups that they don't get the big media attention like a lot of the other companies we hear about all the time? There's a bunch of them. You think of firms like Sycamore Partners, for example, who's this really secretive New York firm that buys up all the uh, old retailers that maybe you don't go to anymore, but you used to you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, you got firm like in Connecticut, like KPS. KPS buys a lot of industrial companies. You don't think about them. A firm called Roar Capital, which is based down in Atlanta. They buy lots of kind of quick serve and fast food restaurant chains. There are tons of them. There are thousands of private equity firms now, lots of them that have you know at least a billion dollars to go play with. They're everywhere. And, and a lot of them get spun out from other firms, not officially, but you know, a couple of maybe junior partners, they leave, they form a new shop. And, and now you've got a new shop. It's got lots of money. Private equity, venture capital, pretty much the model is place 10 bets or 20 bets. Maybe one of them comes through or two of them come through, make a ton of returns. The others maybe don't work out, move on to the next set of deals. Is that sort of the same cycle that we're seeing these days? I think it's changed. So that's definitely true in earlier stage venture capital. One out of every 10 is a home run. Maybe four will return your money flat and then you can lose on the rest. I think though, because the dollar amounts have gotten so much bigger, things have changed. Certainly in private equity, private equity always wants to make money on all their deals. They just want one or two of them to be really outsized performance. And then that's what drives the returns. Thing is, though, you've got this kind of new group of, I I guess what we would call growth equity is probably the best way to refer to it, which is pre-IPO money. And that's always existed. There was always kind of that Series D round of venture capital financing. But now you've got Series E's and F's, and they're huge. They're hundreds of millions of dollars. We've even seen some billion-dollar fundraisings in the private market. Again, these aren't buyouts. This isn't somebody who's spending a billion dollars to get control. These are minority stakes in tech companies, typically, sometimes biotech companies. You're not going to put two, three, four hundred million dollars to work and think, oh, it's okay if we lose this. You know, you're not putting those sorts of bets around. But then again, these are more mature companies. So with a few exceptions, you know, you think of some SoftBank's uh, deals maybe a year or two ago that that went south. Wag, uh, we worked to a certain extent, although that's come back a bit. 
generally you want these things to pay off, but it's still the same thing. You only need one or two to really hit the grand slam so long as the rest of them, you know, you don't lose your shirt on. And we've seen some of that private equity money invested in companies that are eventually going public, whether it's direct listing or via SPAC or or the traditional IPO route, which seems more and more rare these days. But is that the end game for these folks, an exit or a sale to another company? How do private equity, how does it win? And what does winning mean in that world? Yeah, ultimately to sell. Private equity firms, venture capital firms, growth equity firms, leverage buyout firms, none of them are Warren Buffett. None of them want to hold these things for 40 years. I should say, there's a couple exceptions. Even Blackstone, which you mentioned earlier, now kind of has this longer term fund that's supposed to be a little bit Berkshire Hathaway-like. But generally, yeah, it's to sell. Now, the vast majority of sales aren't to the public markets. Usually it's to another company. That can be to a big strategic that is public. It could be to another private company. It could be to another private equity firm. Private equity sells to itself all the time. But particularly if you're talking about a high growth sort of tech company, generally IPO and, and now SPAC or direct listing, although there's still relatively few of them, although we're seeing some you know, coming. Uh, Warby Parker is going to do a direct listing in, in two weeks. And some of the biggest private companies out there are very well known. A lot of folks don't even know, like a Stripe, one of the most valuable companies, private valuable companies out there in the world hasn't even gone public yet and may go at the end of the year, but it's got some of the biggest venture capital backers behind it. Absolutely. And, and others like that. SpaceX is a good example, right? SpaceX is a privately held company. There's some talk that they might take part of the business and bring it public, but they haven't yet. And the most valuable tech startup venture-backed tech startup in the world right now is ByteDance, which is the owner of, among other things, TikTok. They're worth an enormous amount of money. They haven't gone public either. And what are the benefits to staying private? Is it staying out of the public eye? Public companies have to open up the hood. They got to do the quarterly reports. They got to meet earnings estimates. They got to talk to investors. Private equity, a little bit more mysterious. They can kind of do what they want, right? They can. So it depends on the sort of company. So you know, there was this big sea change probably about seven, eight years ago of tech startups, and they called it the staying private longer. And, and that's really kind of what enabled this new industry of this growth equity. The reality is, though, I, I don't think you see as much of that anymore. And I think that really changed after Facebook went public. And several years later, Zuckerberg, who had been kind of famously not wanting to go public and stayed around as long as he could, got asked about it and said, you know what? My fears about going public were overstated or not overstated. I was wrong. You know, I, I, I had all these fears and they haven't come to pass. And look, we are in a year where we have the most IPOs since the year 2000. And last year was a huge number too. I think you're seeing more companies doing it, but you do have the flexibility because there's so much cash in the private markets that if you don't want to go public tomorrow or next month or the week after a sell, there are plenty of investors who are coming to plug money into you. Including, by the way, some kind of mutual fund managers who are the, you know, the Fidelities, the Black Rocks of the world that under normal circumstances, that's one of the reasons you go public is to get them as your shareholders. You can get them now as a private company. Absolutely. A lot of these private companies are available to these big institutional investors. And a lot of them, Dan, are available to retail investors too. That's opening up. I know NASDAQ is trying to get into that, but there are some platforms that do allow retail investors access into the private markets. What are some of the big ones? So NASDAQ's trying to, it depends on the rules. And, and this is something that the SEC kind of keeps battling within itself about, because often you still have to be an accredited investor, which generally means you have a million dollars of non-real estate related assets, your name, a little bit more if you're a married couple. Uh, so yeah, NASDAQ's been doing it because they bought years ago, they bought what was known as second market, which was one of these platforms. 
In general, though, the real way, if, if you want to invest in private companies and you're an individual, the best way probably is to get into mutual funds that are doing it. Uh, you know, T. Rowe Price has them. Franklin Templeton has them. Uh, Fidelity, as I said earlier, has them. That's the best way. And you kind of get a basket. It is still relatively hard as a pure retail investor you know, to get into Stripe or get into SpaceX, et cetera. And, and one of the biggest problems is you have very, very little visibility into the financials. You're not getting a quarterly report. You're not getting you know, regularly audited financials. You're, you're kind of doing it in the dark. If you're a celebrity athlete, though, or or even an influencer, you're getting in there. If you're Kevin Durant, you're getting access to Uber before it goes public. Kevin Durant's got a whole venture firm now. He's got an entire thing, 38 Ventures, I think he calls it. Absolutely. We're trying to get him on this podcast. So, Kevin, if you're listening, we want to talk about your uh, your private equity deals. Where's the big money moving now sector-wise? We know healthcare has been a big deal. Obviously, vaccine makers in that area. Cannabis was maybe a couple of years ago. Crypto and the blockchain a lot of money moving in and around that area. But from your perspective, where do you see the big dollars moving? Where's the flow? Let me start by saying real answer is everywhere, right? Because there is so much money. It is it is flying constantly. Again, record deal flows in private equity and venture capital. You know, one of the spaces we're seeing a lot lately is around payments. I mean, you mentioned Stripe earlier, which for those who don't know, is, is really kind of the payment infrastructure. If you get into an Uber, yeah, you're paying Uber and you're paying the driver, but it's all going through Stripe. And that's true for so many e-commerce and particularly mobile payment applications. But for example, we're seeing a huge number of these so-called buy now, pay later startups, enormous number with big money. They're basically installment loan providers, a little bit like what a firm was first, which is Max Levkin, who was one of the PayPal co-founders. So we're seeing a lot of that, not just in the US, we're seeing that in China, we're seeing that in Europe, we're seeing a little bit of an Africa and certainly in Silicon Valley, but really everything around payments. Plaid's a good example of that, right? Which was the company that Visa tried to buy, kind of another infrastructure, part of the infrastructure stack of payments, uh, and then wasn't able to because DOJ tried to block them and succeeded in that. I'd say that's kind of one of the areas, but you mentioned health tech. I mean, the biggest leverage buyout of the year is something called Medline, which is a medical uh, device or kind of a medical instrumentation company, 30 something billion dollars. First real so-called club deal in private equity in years whereby a lot of private equity firms get together to do something all together that was popular prior to the financial crisis and then fell out of favor. So really, if you have a company and you are an industry, you're going to find money. You mentioned crypto, tons of stuff's going into crypto. Tons of stuff is going to consumer tech and enterprise tech and sports tech. And again, pick a thing, there is money for you. It is everywhere you look right now, private, public, doesn't seem to matter. Even in the warehousing uh, sector, talked to, interviewed Stephen Schwartzman, uh, I think over a year ago, they were buying as many warehouses as they could, not just in the US, but around the world, because they think we're going to need storage for data and everything else. And they're probably right. And they're probably right. And by the way, you, you mentioned warehouses, then think Amazon, another place where you're seeing an enormous amount of private capital go is into roll-ups of Amazon merchants, those third-party companies you know, that are selling on Amazon and sometimes selling on Shopify or other places. You're seeing an enormous amount of money flow into that, These basically these consolidators. We've talked a little bit about SPACs, special, those special purpose acquisition companies. That seems to be a, a, a way that a vehicle that a lot of companies are using to go public or a lot of private companies are making the acquisition of a company to take it public. That seems to have cooled. Have we reached peak SPAC or are we just in a little bit of a lull here from your perspective? I think we probably reached peak SPAC. If, if for no other reason, to create a SPAC is a relatively low lift. So long as you got a little bit of cash, you can hire a lawyer and, and, and hire a bank. So I think you had a lot of people raise SPACs for the purpose of optionality, right? Like it's better to have one and not use it than not have one when you want to use it and find something to buy. The SEC is hinting at a little bit of a crackdown, although they haven't done it yet. One of the reasons that a company might want to use a SPAC to go public as opposed to an IPO is that you can provide a lot more forward-looking guidance, or you can provide it going a lot further out without potential liabilities. I think the SEC will crack down on that, although they haven't yet. 
you have seen a couple cases where SPAC deals have gone bad because there have been, uh, call them questionable disclosures might be the best way to put it. And I think there is a little bit of a stigma of going public via SPAC as opposed to IPO, although there have been plenty of companies that have done it successfully and are doing very well. And, and the biggest one this year, notable is Grab, which is the big Southeast Asia kind of super app ride hail company, which could have easily done an IPO and which is hugely valuable, you know, $30 billion plus. They opted to go for a SPAC because it is faster to go public via SPAC. There's certain parts of it that are easier. But have we reached peak? Yeah, just by the numbers. Like we're seeing fewer SPAC mergers now than we did, you know, two months ago, three months ago. And that inevitably translates into sort of taking a big part of what was traditional Wall Street's business, the underwriting, the roadshow, taking that private company, raising rounds of capital, taking them out to meet investors, trying to pre-sell some of the shares. That's going to be a, a gap in the in the revenue streams for some of these big banks. Although we're having a big IPO year, so the Goldmans and the Morgan Stanleys of the world are doing just fine. But ultimately, we're seeing that business move away from them. I don't think so. No, they're doing just fine. The big IPO year, we're expecting there to be around 100, in the US, around 100 IPOs from Labor Day through Christmas. 100. That's an enormous number of companies. You're talking about there are going to be weeks where there are going to be you know, two dozen companies going public. And the vast majority of those are being you know, underwritten by the Bell Racket Banks, uh, you know, particularly on the tech side, uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, uh, with JP Morgan usually coming in third. They've usually got more business than they know what to do with. You mentioned Warby Parker, but there's also Flipkart out of India. There's some of the food delivery apps in this country that are, that are thinking about going public. Some really high-profile companies that have brands that are established that we use every day now seeking the public markets through these IPOs. So they're going to become part of the, the public market infrastructure soon as well, right? They are. And then a bunch you haven't heard of, but you know, in the next seven to 10 days, depending on when this is airing, there's a company called Sport Radar, for example, which is going to go public. I think it, it's aiming for like an $8 billion valuation, which used to be considered a lot of money. They're kind of a company that provides a lot of the infrastructure behind sports betting. So if you do sports betting, there's a kind of like Stripe, there's a chance you're using Sports Radar, even if you don't know it. And they also provide a lot of the data, which informs the betting on that. Uh, there's a company called On, O-N, which is a sneaker maker uh, out of Europe. I, I think they're Swiss, but but I could be wrong about that. Uh, Roger Federer is an investor. They're talking about going public in the next week or two at a $12 billion valuation. They make sneakers. They're not a tech company, but they are a new sneaker brand. Let's talk about NFTs real quick. I know it's not necessarily private equity, but it's kind of a private market right now. What's your take on these? Is this a bubble uh, or is this just this exploratory part of a mania that we've seen in tulips, that we've seen in railroads, that we've seen in cannabis and crypto, and we're just in that early stage where everybody's fascinated and it's the greater fool theory where it's whatever anybody feels like they should pay or, or would pay or the next person might pay for an NFT. What's your take from where you sit? My take on NFTs, and, I, and I'm going to leave out the idea that this is kind of the next evolution of crypto. I, my take on NFTs is that I think they're dumb, and but I will then qualify that by saying that I have boxes of baseball cards in my basement. Those were dumb too. And I paid for them and they do have some of them have some value. So just because something is stupid doesn't mean it doesn't have value, right? Like, I mean, two people can look at a, at a painting. One person can think it's worth millions of dollars and the other one can just look and think it's just garbage on a, on a canvas. So to me, NFTs, I mean, obviously like everything else, an asset is worth what someone will pay for it. Do I think it's bizarre that people are spending so much money on what is essentially 1980s clip art? Absolutely. It's weird. But on the other hand, I will tell you, my grandfather, who's no longer alive, my grandfather used to run a printing company in New York City years ago in the 1950s. One of the things he printed was Topps baseball cards in the 1950s, including those famous sets that are worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. 
He saved none of them, not a single card. And I know because I searched through his attic and I found none. And the reason he didn't was because they were promotions for gum. It wasn't like you got gum with baseball cards. It was you got baseball cards with gum. They had no value. Today they do. So with NFTs, jury's out. Who knows? These could have value in in 30 years. They could be absolutely worthless in 30 years, like most of the baseball cards I have. And I have stacks of those as well, but they are fun to look at. That said, we're not paying $10,000, $25,000 for them today, but other people are. Fascinating stuff to look at. Let's talk a little bit about regulation. Do you think the private equity world is going to see tighter regulation from this Gary Gensler SEC? They're pretty busy with crypto. They're pretty busy with a lot of other things. You see tighter regulation coming around that industry and putting pressure on it. I don't think so because we haven't had any sort of systemic failure or reason to. Private equity, even throughout the financial crisis, you know, there was not any point of systemic failure. You had a couple big private equity backed deals that collapsed, but nothing that was contagious. So no, I don't think so. I, I still think you will probably see something on the tax side that'll come out of Congress, probably not out of the SEC. I mean, the talk of carried interest, which is the profits that actual uh, private equity executives and investors get off of these deals, which is that might get taxed at a different rate. You know, Congress and different presidents have been talking about that. For for the past decade plus that goes back to early Obama who wanted to change carried interest tax treatment. Trump wanted to change it. Neither one of them got it done. Maybe Biden does. But in terms of regulation, I don't particularly think so. I, I don't see any reason. But the only difference being, I do think under Trump, the SEC wanted to liberalize the rules around retail investors in private markets a little bit more than Gensler probably does. That should also be fascinating to watch. But you're right. We haven't had big blowups there. And that's where the money is. Plus, a lot of those private equity giants are big donors to political campaigns. So tough to get tax reform passed when your biggest backers are the ones that might be affected by it. Particularly when you know it's usually Democrats who want to raise taxes on the rich, but most private equity firms are based either in New York, Boston, or California. Those are all Democratic states with Democratic senators. So they're donating. So they've got, even though you, know, you won't hear it on the record, they've got a little bit of sway with folks who normally would be trying to raise their taxes. That's why it's so hard to do, among other reasons. What's your hot take for the private equity market looking out six to 12 months? There's almost no visibility anywhere in the world, but you have a, a very interesting perch from where you sit. What do you, what do you think we should be watching out for? Up and to the right, it's a rocket ship that's not stopping. Outside of some exigent event, you know, like a war or some sort of natural disaster, I, there's no particular reason why any of this has to stop. Outside of the concept that all cycles come to an end, and you know, you and I have been through a couple of them and seen it, and you, you never really realize until you look at it in retrospect. But right now, structurally, there's no reason to think any of this stops anytime soon. I don't disagree with you at all, and I love reading your stuff, folks. Follow Dan Primack. Follow the ProRata newsletter on Axios. Follow him on the social media platform. So good to have you on the Express. Thanks so much for your perspective. Thanks for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Charles in Walnut Creek, California. What's up there in Contra Costa County? Charles suggests confidential IPO filing for this week's term, and we like that suggestion given the flurry of IPO activity going on these days. According to my favorite website, the confidential IPO was first introduced in 2012 as part of the Jumpstart Our Businesses Startups Act, the JOBS Act. It was a way to support small companies in their efforts to go public. It allowed any company with revenues of $1 billion or less to file an S-1 with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but confidentially. The paperwork would be available to the public approximately 15 days prior to the actual offering. In June 2017, the SEC extended the confidential filing to all companies, regardless of size. 
Companies may want information in their S-1 to stay confidential longer because it prevents competitors and investors from having more detailed knowledge of what's happening inside their operations. It also lets companies test the waters with an IPO without a lot of media scrutiny. Lyft and Uber both filed for confidential IPOs in 2018. Robinhood Markets filed for one earlier this year, and so did Warby Parker, the eyeglass maker, which could announce its IPO pricing any day now. Good suggestion, Charles. You'll be getting the always stylish Investopedia socks in the mail soon, and we'd like to see you sporting those at the Black Bear Diner over there in beautiful Walnut Creek. We're going to let Christine Lagarde take us out this week. Lagarde is the president of the European Central Bank and the former head of the International Monetary Fund. Lagarde was asked last week after the ECB's policy meeting why the bank is not calling its reduction of monthly bond purchases, quote unquote, tapering. For some reason, no one wants to use that word these days for fear of setting off a taper tantrum. Here's Lagarde. The lady isn't tapering. Because what we are doing is recalibrating uh, PEP, which I remind you is the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program. And we are recalibrating just as we did back in December and back in March. We are doing, we're doing that on the basis of the framework which is a joint assessment. So we look at the financing conditions and we concluded that they remain favorable. And we do that on the basis on the inflation outlook. Oh, so it's a recalibration, not a tapering. Very clever. Hey, it's always a good time for a recalibration, so we're going to pull on the station and do just that. But I want to let you in on an event we're having soon to answer more questions you have related to your health and your money that we're doing along with our friends at our sister site, VeryWell.com. On September 21st, we're bringing together some of the brightest minds in finance and healthcare to answer your most important questions and share timely advice on everything from managing financial stress to navigating the future of patient care. I'm one of the hosts of this virtual event, along with a distinguished panel of financial and health experts. Join us at this virtual event, Your Money, Your Health, on September 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. To reserve your spot, go to investopedia.com slash conference. That's investopedia.com slash conference. And we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.